Did you miss me? I guess not. Name that movie. Name that movie, people, right now. Yell it. Yell it wherever you're listening to this show. Okay, whatever. Uh, figure it out if you can. Figure it out if you can. We're off to a great start. Sorry, if I was off a week. I, I'm, I'm out of practice. Hello, and welcome back to the We Didn't Peak podcast after our brief one-week hiatus. That was the first time in 25-something episodes that uh, we ever took a, took a, time, a week off. And I uh, was fully prepared to not take a week off, but there was some travel issues. I was traveling and ran into a just a fuck ton of issues with that. And then um, some technical issues mixed with it. I could have figured it out. It, it, I could have figured something out to get the episode out. But I did not want to because I was very tired and very run down and just ready to not have to do a thing. Isn't that beautiful when you can just make the decision, you know what, no, today it won't happen. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow will be better. I think that's beautiful. To me, that's beauty. All right, so uh, what do we got? It's been a while. I just drove across the country, which was exciting. Drove from Chicago to L.A. with uh, Mr. Avery Brooks, friend of the show, Avery Brooks. We did that road trip. Um, long drive, but we, we broke it up over the course of like four, four days, three nights or so. We were late getting started on the trip because of some car issues, which uh, if you're going to have car issues on a road trip, you're, it's the best time to have them is before the trip actually starts. So that you just delay the trip a little bit rather than, you know, be in the middle of like uh, Goblin, Utah or whatever the fuck <laughs> and your car breaks down and all the people come out are like, yeah, hey, hey, what's going on? Looks like we got ourselves a fresh one. That's what I think of uh, people that live in remote areas. <laughs> Whoo, boy. But yeah, the trip was good. We stopped in Denver. Denver was beautiful. Uh, well, actually, so we stopped in Lincoln, Nebraska was our first stop. Gorgeous little hotel in Lincoln, Nebraska. I think it was a Hyatt. No, not a Hyatt. It was a Marriott, maybe. I don't know. Is that the same thing? Are they, they, it feels like all these hotels own each other. Like there's like par- a parent company that owns like every single hotel, but then there's a hotel that owns the parent company that owns a bunch of hotels, and then that hotel is partnered with NASCAR or some shit. I don't know. Uh, but it was nice. Nice, uh, nice stay in Lincoln. Nice stay in Denver. Got to eat a buffalo burger uh, at Buffalo Bill's grave. Buffalo Bill is buried uh, atop a mountain uh, just outside Denver, and there's a little restaurant up there where you can eat a, a buffalo meat burger or whatever the fuck. Uh, so that was fun. The staff at that restaurant were having the worst day of their lives. They were like arguing. Someone had like no called, no showed to work, and I guess according to the cashier, he is like their best worker that no called, no showed. So they were just absolutely screwed for the day and uh they were letting every single customer know about it which i appreciate i would rather i would much rather have that than have people be like oh everything's fine (laughs) and it's like they look like they're in uh being held hostage at work yeah then we went through utah geez the the lord really did something in utah utah is a gorgeous state uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend driving through that fucker. Uh, check out Moab. 
the Arches National Park, all that stuff is beautiful. So yeah, it's a good trip. Good, fun, silly, dumb trip. Uh, but I'm happy to be home. I was so ready to be home. I think I would have enjoyed the trip so much more if I was like not so ready to be home, which is what a novel concept. You enjoy being out of town a lot more when you're not ready to be home. So good trip, long trip. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I'll get to just stick around home for a little bit longer, but I might be traveling again soon. More updates on that to come. You guys are, this has been a, I'm crushing this intro. Uh, what have, you know, a lot's happened. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. AEW, last night, they had, uh, well, they had a pretty banner night for the company. We saw the AEW uh, debuts of Ruby Soho, formerly known as Ruby Riot in the WWE, uh, and she came out and kicked some ass. Love that for her. And then we saw... Of course, Adam Cole Bay Bay emerged from the back and say Adam Cole Bay Bay in the ring. Very, very fun stuff. Uh, excited to see what the company does with him. And then, well, goddamn, we had CM Punk's return to to a ring. He, you know, he's been back. He's been on the on the mic. He's been walking around on the show. But he hasn't uh, wrestled in seven years, and we watched him wrestle, and that some bitch can still go with a capital G O. Good for Punk. Like I don't know. I'm very happy with with his uh, work in the ring, his work on the mic. I think he's uh, in this golden spot in his career now that uh, he's just decided to walk back into, and I am so pumped to watch him uh, continue to wrestle. And then, of course, yes, 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 the yes man himself, Daniel, well, sorry, Brian Danielson has become all elite what a time to be alive what a time to be a wrestling fan what a time to not work for the wwe still a soft uh, still a sore subject for me maybe i'll maybe i'll talk about it one day okay oh boy let's see here so yeah aew was awesome and uh, this is a spoiler alert for the interview because our interview today, uh, we do a hefty chunk of res- wrestling talk, and our uh, guest today was at the AEW pay-per-view last night, in person, in the flesh. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's do some questions, comments, and concerns. I would like to just get through these now, because it's been a week, and I'm eager to see what you have. Here we go. All right, uh, we're only going to do a couple of these. <laughs> okay, well, for the first one is, what are your thoughts on Afghanistan? I have given those thoughts in a previous episode. <laughs> Go back and listen. Uh, seems to be out of the news cycle now, though. Because of this, the next uh, questions, comments, and concerns, these are uplifting. With the new abortion law in Texas, does this mean we can abort Ted Cruz? Well, see, that's tricky. Because... Ted Cruz has already been born, and in order, I think the definition of abortion is to uh, ab- abort the pregnancy 
before uh, the the birth. I could be wrong on that, but Ted Cruz has sadly already been birthed. But what we could do is get a time machine, go back in time, and abort Ted Cruz whenever he was still a fetus. Uh, I think we could do that at you know at, at any point. We can build a time machine and get rid of Ted Cruz. You know what? Ted Cruz is the perfect example of the modern Republican Party. He is just a like wet loser that talks as if he's acting in a community theater play. Like he he behaves like he is giving the big third act speech in a community theater production of like uh, some courtroom drama. You know what I mean? Like it, it feels like he's playing. It feels like he is the community, the town community theater star actor who's like a manager at Sears still, even though the company went belly up. He's somehow still a manager at Sears, but he's like the best actor in te- well, not the best actor, but he is the guy who gets the 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 big role with the big speech, and he he, he just like I say, he just looks wet and. He, the only rival to uh, other people dunking on him, like the only person who's better than like outside sources dunking on him, is he dunks on himself. I, I, you, you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. I don't, I don't know if I'm articulating this very well, but the man can't stop shitting in his own hands. Remember that video where he tried kissing his daughter and she pulled away. <laughs> She's like, get the fuck away from me, you fucking melting candle looking ass man. Uh, yeah, Ted Cruz is a, is a scumbag, and uh, you know I, I do wish him well, though. You know what? I don't wish him well. I wish him a very a very sad. I would like Ted Cruz to have a very sad. I would like all uh, or most Texas politicians to be sad because that's the thing. It's not fuck Texas. It's fuck Texas. Republican leadership. There are plenty of really good people in Texas, plenty of really good people all across the American South that get lumped in with these fucking morons that control their lives for some reason. Uh, they've they've been given this uh, power, you know, voting obviously. But it's 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 just as someone who's from the South and knows a lot of people who are just basically straight up brainwashed. It does not excuse at all the. Uh, you know, the policies that get pushed through in these places, these very regressive policies and things like that. But I see a lot, whenever something like this happens, and it's it's discouraging that it happens so much, I see a lot of people immediately starting to demonize the citizens of, of southern states. And I think there actually has been a lot of really good discourse on just this idea that I'm talking about, that it's like, we need to stop focusing our negative uh, energy and and you know and and uh, disdain towards the the population and more towards the people at the top, because a lot of people in these places are just like are good people that don't want this to happen. You know, there there are plenty of people that are being held hostage by these crazy state Republican state governments and. Uh, it just hurts. It it sucks and it hurts and it's messy and bad. Some would call it, you know, the democratic process to have, you know, uh, ideas of both sides of the aisle represented, quote unquote, or whatever. But there are certain, you know, humanitarian issues, certain 
uh, things like that, social issues that I don't think they necessarily have a party line. There's right and there's wrong. And right is often wrong. Wow, I stuck that landing. Did you see how I stuck that landing? Holy shit. <laughs> uh, difficult topics. Little bit of humor. Uh, last one I'll do. <laughs> this one just says Italian food. Very pro. I love Italian food. It's probably my favorite food genre, being a uh, Dago myself. It's, um, uh, what would my favorite one be? I like a nice manicotti. Manicotti is delicious. Uh, that's that's a really good uh, option. I was just in Chicago at the, uh, my, my favorite Italian restaurant in the city is called Bella Luna. It's been on drivers, uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives, uh, which is awesome. And the guy like cooks out of like the same cookware that his old Nona like would cook out of whenever you know she would make their family dinners and shit. Like he's, it's like all this old, really well-made cookware. You know the stuff that just doesn't just turn to shit eventually. Like this modern stuff. Like he uses these same like saucepans and stuff. It's just delicious. It's a delicious place. They make a nice. They make a nice nochi. Uh, yeah, go check it out. Uh, the the rigatoni with chicken and that cream sauce that they make with the rigatoni and chicken is a to die for. Bella Luna in like Gold Coasty area. It's like Division and something. I don't know. Google it. Fuck you. Google it. Uh, so yeah, eat Italian food. Very excited for the many saints of Newark. Speaking of Italians, that movie's gonna be the. I'm. I'm. I was telling a friend this the other day. I am going to wear. The loudest bowling style polo shirt with uh, the the chunkiest of tan khaki just pants. I'm gonna walk into the movie theater smoking a cigar with fucking gabagool coming out of both of my pockets. They're gonna try to make me leave. They're gonna try to make me put that cigar out, but it will not work because I woke up this morning and I got myself a gun. Very excited for that movie. Woke up this morning, got some gabagool. Oh, I saw Shang-Chi last night, uh, or Shang-Chi, as uh, they say it in the film. Very good. Good movie. Go see it. Run. Don't walk. Fun Marvel movie. Some of the better uh, martial arts, like choreography, uh, fight scenes that we've seen in the MCU. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. Go check it out. Movies are back, folks. Movies are back. <laughs> God, it's been a long week. Oh, shout out to the Lincoln Lodge also uh, in Chicago. I had a great time uh, last weekend or the the weekend. This is Monday, not Sunday, Saturday, sun, like this the weekend that we just came out of because I was driving during that weekend. The one before did some fun shows at the Lincoln Lodge. Love that place. My favorite place to do stand up in Chicago. Uh, go check it out. Uh, my friend Bailey is doing some shows there this week. Uh, Bailey Norton. Shout out to Bailey Norton who did the graphics for this show uh, and was the second guest ever. Uh, you know what? Let me find where is the official show plug so I can give you the exact uh, do to do's here. Bailey Norton. Yeah, it's so uh, Bailey and Sammy Mowry are doing their show, Fems the Rules. Uh, it's a very funny, uh, unique sort of format uh, stand up comedy show. It's, it's a stand up comedy show with a twist. Uh, and just go check it out. It's uh, this Wednesday, so in two days uh, at the Lincoln Lodge. Uh, get those tickets at lincolnlodge.com. Fems the Rules, September 8th at 8 p.m. at the Lincoln Lodge. Check out my friend Bailey. 
Very funny. Okay, yeah, Bailey and I also have this thing where we can we constantly uh, just miss each other on trips. Anytime I go back to Springfield, she goes back to Springfield the week after. And now I've I was just in Chicago, and now she's in Chicago the week after. What in the world? Oh, also, there's right outside Moab the turnoff the of the of the highway in Utah to go to like towards Moab and the uh, Arches National Park. There's this little green alien themed gas station that is so fun from the outside, and then it's just a jerky store on the inside, just thousands of different types of beef jerky. And you know what they also have? They have. Six dollar a gallon gas, and they do not advertise it on any sort of signage outside. So we watched two people come into the store while we were looking at jerky and complain about the gas prices. So if you're driving through Utah, don't stop for gas there. Stop for gas somewhere else because the jerky's great, but the prices are terrible. Speaking of terrible prices, okay, I swear to God, we're gonna get the interview. Speaking of terrible prices. Sweet Bloom Coffee in Denver, Colorado can kiss my ass. I it's called Sweet Bloom Coffee. It's in Denver, Colorado. I'm calling this business out by name. They served me a $20 cup of coffee. You heard it. You heard that right. I paid 20 American dollars for a single cup of coffee. No coffee on this earth is worth $20. Jesus Christ himself could have spat in that coffee and it would have been worth like maybe $10. Fucking crazy. When he told me the total was $20, he had pointed at a bag. He said, which one of these do you want? We roast them, pour over. He pointed to the bag and the way he phrased it, it sounded like I was getting a cup of coffee and the the bag of beans because they're like smaller. They weren't like a full bag of beans, like a small uh, bag of beans that is the coffee that they just roasted for me. I was like, oh, a cup of coffee and a little uh, bag of beans, uh, roasting beans to go. $20? That, you know what? That's a little t- pricey, but you know, that's, it's a pretty good deal. And I've heard this is great coffee. Nope. No bag. Just a $20 cup of piss water. Fuck that place disparaging a business again uh you know what i'm sure they're fine people just the the, yeah you gotta fix those prices okay let's get to the interview folks i am so excited for our guest today uh he is a a very a very 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 cool dude his name of course as you've read from the episode description John Carr. John is the executive producer for The Second City. You may have heard of it. Uh, Comedy institution in Chicago. And uh, I'm very excited for you guys to hear what he has to say about coming up as a uh, as a young man in Los Angeles, born and raised, actually. Uh, shout out LA here. And uh, now he uh, and his journey uh, to now be basically uh co-running with a a team of great people co-running the biggest comedy like company institution i'll say institution again in uh the country for live comedy i there are a few places that are more iconic than the second city and this fella has the keys to the kingdom um yeah so let's just get into the interview right now uh as always please be sure to crush that subscribe button uh crush that download button download this episode subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts 
Follow us on Instagram at We Didn't Peak. Like us on Facebook, uh, We Didn't Peak with Chance Nichols. And follow me on Instagram or Twitter, both at Chance Is Loud. And then John will plug his stuff in the interview. And now, without further ado, please enjoy my chat with uh, the one, uh, the only, Mr. John Carr. Enjoy. Alrighty, Roo folks. Uh, John. Hello. How are we doing? How are you feeling? I'm doing great. All right. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for yeah. having me. Hey, <laughs> thanks for doing the show. Uh, it does mean a lot. You are a uh, a nice big fish guest, uh, I will say. <laughs> wow. I have uh, never re- referred to as a big fish, so really? I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Have you seen the movie? I have seen the movie. Yeah. You, you, you a fan? I mean, it was fine. Yeah, yeah. it was fine. That tells you, you can learn a lot about a person based on how they feel about that movie, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really a character exploration kind of guy. Interesting. Okay. I'm I'm real story driven. Give me a a good story. That is a very fair and taken point. I, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't have any particular, I guess, attachment to... That movie, other than I was in, uh, so when I was in high school, we did uh, Reader's Theater. Are you familiar with no. Reader's Theater? Mm-hmm. So it's like a theater art form where you hold your the script in, your, in like a three-ring binder, mm-hmm. and you move around like set pieces, and you basically tell, like, tell, like you're, you're, performing as if you're telling the audience the story like direct address Mm -hmm. but everyone's playing a character you don't make eye contact with the other actors like when you're acting scenes you're like parallel right and our uh, director adapted the script for big fish uh for our um oh was that my sophomore year of high school i think Yes, it was my sophomore year of high school, so wow. I had to learn a lot about Big Fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is I actually have a connection to that movie because it used to be our family tradition on Christmas Day. My brother, myself, and my dad, we would always go to the movies, and that would be the one time of year we would theater hop. So we oh, would okay. go see a movie and then sneak into a second movie afterwards. And for whatever reason, me and my brothers always thought that was the greatest thing in the world that our dad <laughs> did. I do think he secretly went out and paid for the other movie, but like it just yeah. felt like we were being adventurous. That is, yeah, that is that that is a very cool dad move. Yeah, exactly. When you're like, when when dad's like, we're gonna be kind of bad today. <laughs> like pulls you out of school to go to a baseball game exactly. or whatever. Yeah, that's awesome. That's Christmas movies are like a thing. That's yeah. that's like a big tradition that uh, for a long time I didn't really because in my family it was a lot of like when I was younger a lot of travel. So right. we would go to different like states and mm-hmm. like surrounding area and stuff. So we were a little too busy to like stay in one place, go see a movie, whatever. But right. yeah, holiday movies are a big thing. Well, I think it's it's because. Um, Christmas is such a letdown because like here's the thing like you have you go on Christmas morning you open all the presents you're there with your family you're so excited your presents you play with your presents and then you're kind of like done and you have this moment where you're just there awkwardly staring at each other and you're just like oh oh that's right I don't like anyone here (laughs) we should go to the movies (laughs) the magic is gone gone. (laughs) man uh, do you have a favorite holiday um, Imagine I, you said Christmas. Like, Christmas <laughs> is great. <laughs> you can go see two movies. Right. Uh, I, you know what? I think probably I would say, you know what? Um, I want to say Thanksgiving. Okay. Um, no, I want to take that back. Easter, but it's only because recently. Okay. Um, because as a kid, so I grew up 
we were my parents were always children's pastors. Okay. And so Easter for most people, Easter is like a holiday. You spend with your family and all that. Easter growing up was always a work day. That was always a giant work day because the big church thing. And so when I finally got old enough and left the house, like the first thing I wanted to do was do nothing on Easter. And so my <laughs> Easter tradition became: don't put on pants, order a giant pizza, and just veg out on the couch. And that is how I spent Easter for the next probably 15 years and it's uh, it's become my favorite holiday that is the only way to do easter <laughs> in my opinion now that is how i spent most of last year so uh, it does it does sound less exciting now after <laughs> right. the pandemic. we've all had a we've had all had our own uh, john carr easter experience yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah well that's awesome that's uh i uh, so uh, parents or children's pastors yes is that, is that correct i so i have a similar thing where i can relate to that a bit my grandmother ran the preschool program for our church. Ah. So I was also like, I was an honorary PK. Like okay. I would I would be there on off days, like working and stuff, like nice. setting up the arts and crafts and whatnot. So Were you bad? Was it like a bad kid? Yeah, were you a bad kid? No. Really? I was the, uh, like, I don't want to say the perfect child because right. that's insane to say about yourself, but I was such a good little boy. Well, you're breaking the PK mode, right? PKs are the worst, notoriously. Yeah, so, we had a couple of those. Yeah, yeah, they are they are nightmares on wheels. Mm -hmm. And it's a great being at this age now, where I'm like, now I'm in my 40s. I just turned uh, actually I'm 41 now, um, and so now I'm going back and finding all of them. And now these like insane people that I've just seen do some crazy things and I'm like and they're like yeah I'm running a church down I'm like uh -huh. really after all of that after yeah. all of that <laughs> really that is a phenomenon that's yeah. a thing you see it like in high school I knew some of the biggest party animals at my high school are now like posting on Instagram like God's grace allowed us to go to this restaurant tonight and enjoy a beautiful meal <laughs> like, like all right. I've seen you run through a sliding glass door <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Were, were you uh, were you a rowdy rowdy uh, PK well, kid? See, there's a difference because um, I wasn't a PK kid. I was a children's pastor kid. Oh, and yeah. see, children's pastor CPK. kids are yes, yeah, CP yeah. kids. We're different because we have to be good because, like, at a very young age, I realized that our family income was like tied to our behavior mm -hmm. because no one's going to turn over their children's ministry to parents that have terrible kids. Right. And so like we were very aware of the fact that like we had to be the model children because our income, we could, our parents could like get in trouble and lose their job if we were bad kids. So, okay. so we were like, we were model kids uh, for as long as we could be. <laughs> for as long as that fuse would last. That's great. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that's, that reminds me of, have you seen that uh, Jupiter Ascending or whatever that on Netflix? Oh, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it yet. Okay, cool. Are you a superhero person? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, hell I've yeah. Good. Uh, on that, it's a great little series. They're mm -hmm. not doing a second season, which is a bummer, but they, uh, on that, it basically superhero family. One of the kids is the model child. The other kid's a wild child. Mm -hmm. Mom and dad are both superheroes. And the dad, played by, uh, is it Josh Brolin? No, it's uh, Josh Dumel. Mm -hmm. He, like, 
reiterates over and over and over again throughout the season, we have to be the ideal. You kids have to be the ideal. Why are you not being the ideal right now? You are ruining my reputation. I'm Superman in this universe, and my kids are an embarrassment. So uh, that wow. is, that, that's a theme, I think, across a lot of things. Is like uh, You have to understand, I have a job, and you are my kid. And if my kid is being bad, that makes my job bad. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure, so yeah, for sure. I believe that. Uh, so let's talk about wrestling a little bit. Sure. I One of the first things, whenever you first uh, joined uh, the company here at Second City, yeah. uh, during your initial like Zoom hello to yep. all of us, because we were all Zooming, uh, still half Zooming kind of uh, to this day, uh, you mentioned loving wrestling. Yes. And I put into the chat something about AEW oh, because yeah. you were down in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So what uh, are you fired up about this CM Punk thing? Oh my God, I was I sat there and watched it live, and mm-hmm. I was I was that person that had the goosebumps when yep. he came out and everything, because uh, that was huge. Oh yeah, how huge was that? It was crazy, and it was like it was, and I know. This makes sense to no other human being on the planet except wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. But it was that moment where you're like, it doesn't matter how this goes. I'm watching history. Yes. And I want to be able to say I watched it when it happened live. Mm-hmm. And because it felt it felt like a historic moment. Yeah, for sure. It was as big, in my opinion, as the first time the NWO came out on Absolutely. WCW. Yeah, it was a power shift in the wrestling world Mm -hmm. uh, that we haven't seen since WCW. Yeah, and the craziest thing about it is it's coming, the timing could not have been more perfect. Because, you know, Punk could have came back last year and it still would have been huge, but the Mm -hmm. fact that WWE is on such a decline right now in fan, like in the favor of the fans, and AEW is in this huge momentum upswing with snatching up uh, all these like cut wrestlers, Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Dynamite last week, but Punk alluded to Daniel Bryan. Yeah, I saw that. You know, yeah. he's incoming, and I'm sure they'll sign Bray Wyatt and Braun oh, yeah. Strowman and do something with that. Yeah, it, no, it's it's a huge thing, but it's also, I think the thing that's different this time around versus the WCW time is, like, I feel like they're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't, like, I feel like with WCW, it was because Hulk Hogan is there and we made him a bad guy, now everyone's watching WCW, where what I feel like they're doing on AEW is we're doing good wrestling. There's a foundation of prioritizing good quality wrestling. We're building a foundation of prioritizing our fans and we are also bringing in other people. Yes. And so even if Punk leaves next year, I still feel like they're going to be in a good place and not so dependent on any one person or any one thing because they have a strong foundation, a strong system. And I think it's going to be the thing that overtakes WWE. Yeah, it is. You you made a great point in, in saying that about the difference between WCW because Ted Turner didn't have a Cody Rhodes, a Young Bucks. No. He didn't have the elite. Tony Khan has the elite. Yep. So he ha- you have the money and the backing yep. and the influence. And then you have the most over independent wrestling <laughs> stars maybe of all time. Yes. And they make stars. Like yep. that's the big thing. It's like they like um, – uh, 
crap. I'm a CM Punk's uh, opponent, first opponent, Darby Allen. Oh, Darby Allen. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but like they made Darby Allen. Like mm-hmm. they, because WCW just bought stars. They just bought as many stars. But they're buying stars for sure. But they're also making their own stars. So they're never dependent on a contract negotiation or anything. Like no, if someone leaves, we can make new young talent. Yeah, and that's and Punk said that in his promo. He's yeah. like, I'm excited to work with these young guys back yep. there because they're actually getting a push and not just being sent out on non-televised live events to, you know, uh, just work matches in, like, Stillwater, Oklahoma, <laughs> in front of a half-capacity, like, community college basketball crowd. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So it's just exciting. It's exciting to be a part of the history and, like, yeah. watch it happen. It's very exciting. It's very... Do Were you ever... Uh, did, did you ever have any sort of, like, dealings with or, like, go by the Nightmare Factory down in Atlanta? Um, no, I never got a chance to go by the Nightmare Factory. I did have a couple of friends, so I wrestled for a small local independent um, yes. uh, promotion in Atlanta, and I had a couple of friends that like came, fr- went back and forth between the that factory and like. Uh, but I've heard nothing but amazing stories coming out of there. Yeah, they are. Uh, so a buddy of mine, Darian, Darian Bankston, shout out to Darian Bankston, a fan of the show, friend of the show, all that stuff. He uh, he and I studied theater together in college and undergrad. We got we both got uh, our acting degrees at Missouri State University. We lived together. He moved to London to uh, go to get a uh, graduate degree from like the Theater Academy Love London. Huh. And while he was in London studying theater, <laughs> he started going to a wrestling school out there. It was oh, like a wow. lucha style wrestling school, and he ended up falling in love with it. And now he uh, he's buddied up with you know Anthony Agogo. Yeah, yeah. He, he, they are best friends. Really? Because he, they were, became training partners over in London. So oh, when wow. Anthony signed with AEW yeah. and COVID happened and Darian got kicked out of London, they came over and they, I think they, I don't know if they live together in Atlanta, but they trained together at the Nightmare Factory. Oh, wow. And yeah, so he's having an, a crazy experience. He wrestled a match on Dark the okay. other oh, uh, week. Oh, wow. yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Well, it, it is always fun to me, like, the weird connection between theater and wrestling. Absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, that's how I got into wrestling because I was working at an improv theater, and so we wanted to do, like, a wrestling show, and so we connected, we partnered with this um, with this promotion, a small promotion in town, and so they would come and we would, like, they'd do the wrestling parts and we would do the, prom- the promo parts, and it was just, like, a fun, silly thing. So when that show ended, the guy who ran the local wrestling promotion invited a couple of performers, was like, hey, do you guys want to just take classes for free? And so we came into classes, and that guy was 100% a theater guy. Yeah. And so when he did his wrestling classes, like, he equated to, like, story, strong storytelling and physically telling stories mm-hmm. and, like, building characters, understanding who your character was and being grounded in the reality that you had created. And so it was all this kind of, like, theater stuff that I was like, oh, I can do this. This makes sense to me. And yeah. I loved it. Absolutely. That is so... Uh, I don't forget. I think it's Mamet. I think there is a Mamet quote that exists Mm -hmm. somewhere out there. It might be some other playwright or some other theater like Mm -hmm. uh, overlord Mm -hmm. that has been quoted saying professional wrestling is the only solely American theater art form. (laughs) Like it it is a theater art form that was born here 100 percent and didn't really come out of any other sort of tradition because, you know, the carnivals and all that stuff. It's the jazz of theater. Yes, really. It's just it's you're out there winging it in a way that improv could never be because there are dire physical consequences. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's awesome. That's absolutely true. And I uh, 
because that's yeah the greatest wrestlers to me are great talkers and great physical storytellers sort right. of like what you were saying which is why i think punk is one of the greatest of all time yep. arguably the best on the microphone yep. ever and all of his matches it, it is just dripping with heart yep yeah and, and that's what i'm excited to see him like have some real um ownership of his storylines mm-hmm. and ownership of um, the story he's trying to tell because that's the thing you never really had in WWE. Yeah. It's like you had some ideas and you had some things, but there was always a bunch of other people with their input. In AEW, it just feels like you get a little bit more um, ownership of it. And I'm curious yes. to see the stories that he tells there. Yeah, because there, well, there's no writers for AEW. Yeah. They don't have a writing staff, and I know that because I was in talks to join the writing staff of one of WWE shows. Oh. I was like having meetings uh, that is... At this point, not a humble brag. <laughs> and now saying this out loud, probably will never get the job. But uh, when I didn't, when it didn't work out, right. I like started exploring, like reaching out to some AEW people because I had all these like wrestling spec scripts. Right. I'm like, well, maybe, but they don't have a writing team. It's wow. like the the boys in the back or yeah. whatever. The the talent in the back are the ones that you know script the matches and they script the storylines. They pitch their own stuff, which you can see it on screen. Oh, it's yeah. like none of us have to do. God, what is, what is a like the Thanksgiving stuffing <laughs> brawl for all <laughs> holiday hoobie whatty like weird stuff that right. they make them do over there? Uh, have you ever been around like a like a famous pro wrestler? Like, have you ever like talked to one in person? I've been around them, but uh-huh. <laughs> the ones I have have never really talked very much. I think yeah. the only two that I've done is the Iron Sheik. And oh, wow. Samoa Joe. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. around. I saw Samoa Joe at an airport. So that's oh, what really? I was going to say. I saw. So I was on a flight uh, back to. So I'm from Springfield, Missouri, which mm-hmm. is Southwest Missouri area. And uh, when I was living here in Chicago, there was uh, Frontier Airlines was doing a deal where it was O'Hare to Branson, Missouri, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Branson, oh, yeah. Yeah. the Vegas of the Midwest, <laughs> uh, and, which is right outside my hometown yeah. for like $50 round trip to Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I jumped on that. But they were flying all their flights out of the international terminal. And this was mm-hmm. right before WWE went and did like a big European tour. So yeah. I get to my to the terminal and I am in line with the Iconics, <laughs> with uh, Peyton Royce and uh, uh, yeah. uh, what is Billy Kay. Billy Kay. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of her real name yeah. because neither of them are there anymore. <laughs> their Instagrams have changed. Yeah. Uh, and so I was in line with them. I saw Peyton like chug her water bottle because they wouldn't let her take it through security. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I saw Kevin Owens at the gate oh, and wow. Samoa Joe. And Samoa Joe, he looks like a big guy on TV. But when you are when you see him in person, his head is as wide as this table. <laughs> he is a humongous human yes, being. Yes, yes. He is so good. Well, when I saw him, like, I, I, this is my humble brag, I wrestled on a card with him. Oh, and by yeah, wrestled okay. on a card with him, I mean I was in the opening Royal Rumble and he was the main event and mm-hmm. our paths never yeah, crossed. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> But, like, he was in the back, but, like, he was so focused. Like, you know, he didn't talk to anybody. Like, he was just, like, super focused. I will tell you, the Iron Sheik, on the other hand, um, he was – I wrestled him because he he passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Did he? I think so. Sheik is still alive. He might be. Well, you know I'll what? Google it. <laughs> yeah, Google it. I, I'll listen and, and Google it. <laughs> I, I just I – just, I remember because it was, it was during his rougher phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was part of an improv – theater there and so we're like somebody was just like you know uh, the Iron Sheik lives around the corner and we're like we should just get him to come do the show I wonder how much it would cost and (laughs) so somebody was like 
so somebody found out and they're like, it's 200 bucks. So they're like, <laughs> so, so everybody like literally we got our wallets out and everybody contributed 20 bucks. And yeah. so we got the iron sheet to show up That's and it was, it was, but like we found out later what happened was the guy went, picked up the iron sheet, gave him the 200 bucks. He's like, drop me off in this corner. Bought crack, smoked it, <gasps> oh. and then came to the theater. <laughs> and so, so like, I now I can say I bought crack uh, because I contributed twenty dollars wow. to that. You you bought crack for the Iron Sheik? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did. I'm, I feel bad. So I, I hope he's still alive. Please tell me that he's still alive. He he is alive. Okay, thank God. He uh, is alive. He is seventy nine years young. Good God! And he is alive and well. Uh, well. He is alive. That is a hell of a story. <laughs> that that easily beats what I was going to follow up with, which is I met Punk one time mm-hmm. because this TV show I used to work for back in Missouri, uh, they got him as a guest. It mm-hmm. was like it's it's called the Mystery Hour. Uh, people who listen to the show know all about it. It's basically like a regionally syndicated late night comedy show mm-hmm. in like the Missouri area, and they have it in different little small markets. Like your local Fox affiliate will play it mm-hmm. on like Saturday night or whatever, and. Uh, they had after I left the show and was already living in Chicago. They had Punk come on as a guest, and this was when he was like he had just had his second loss in the UFC, mm-hmm. so he was still like just kind of not doing anything right. like other than just existing as Phil Brooks. Mm-hmm. And um, so I flew to town for like a family thing, and just happened to be there the same weekend that he was going to be a guest on the show. So I dropped by the theater where the studio is, where we would where we would tape the episodes because uh, the host would like. They'd get a big out-of-town guest every taping. So, right. like, we've had uh, Jay Jackson, who was pert happily on Parks and Rec, mm-hmm. um, Kenny Banya from Seinfeld. Like, right. it was the the idea was like, let's get beloved character actors from f- popular sitcoms that will do this because they have a rate that we can pay because right. they're like appearance fees or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I got to meet Punk. We walked around uh, the theater uh, when uh, when he introduced him. He introduced himself as Phil. Okay. So I was like, okay, good, because cool. the entire drive over, I was like, what do I call this man? <laughs> Am I about to call a forty-something-year-old man punk? <laughs> do I call him Chick Magnet? What am I doing? And uh, so he was like, Phil. I was like, hey, nice to meet you, man. I'm Chance. He said, Phil. And uh, then Jeff took us up to his new office, which was in like the top floor of this building down the street. And he was just like, I'm excited to show you guys this office. And Punk was like. Why are we going to this one? <laughs> All right, I'm just going to text my wife to let her know if she doesn't hear from me in 10 minutes to call the police. Um, damn. That, that, so did you, you you got to wrestle with the Iron Sheik. Well, I will say he was in a different segment than I was. Oh, okay. But we made the mistake because, and bless his heart, one of the guys was like, it's the Iron Sheik. We should really take advantage of the fact that he's going to be in our wrestling show. Yeah. I'm going to let him hit me with a chair. Oh, good. With an with one of our metal chairs. Mm-hmm. Um keeping in mind that he has just recently smoked crack and he's also a crazy man yes so he hit the guy with the metal chair but there was no there was no pulling it there is no safely hitting him like he just wailed on this dude with an with a metal chair and it's it is one of those like wrestling things where it's like holy crap my friend is hurt but also holy crap you Mm -hmm. just got hit by a chair with the iron sheet that's awesome worth it (laughs) i know worth it it. yeah that's great uh well uh, I 
share your sentiments. I think <laughs> AEW is going to overtake WWE. <laughs> I think it's worth getting hit by a chair from the Iron Sheik. <laughs> and uh, with that, we will conclude the wrestling portion. <laughs> I'm sorry for any of you theater or improv nerds who do not care about professional wrestling that have made it through to this point. Edit, edit that part out. We'll, we'll just get straight to this. Cool, yeah. I'll just leave. This will just be for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, where were you uh, born and raised? Were you born and raised in Atlanta? No, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I moved around a little bit, but mainly I lived in Inglewood, California. Nice. I go there a lot, actually, okay. because there is a brewery there where my roommate Ricky works. Oh, it's nice. called Three Weavers Brewing. Okay. Yeah, it's like this giant warehouse where they brew beer all day long. Very cool. Yep. Very cool. Uh, that's uh, Well, that's awesome. I did not know that you were an L.A. guy. Yeah, yep, was there... Well, most of my childhood was in L.A. I think I moved to Atlanta when I was about 20 years old. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so uh, later in life thing. Um, so what type of uh, like what type of kid were you? Like elementary age-ish. Age. I did my research. Okay. I did do my research. Okay, great. And by research, I mean I read your bio on the website. <laughs> you, I think you are. We have a, we didn't peek first. I think you're our first homeschool kid. I am. Yeah, well, that's, I, I'm honored. Yes. Um, I'm going to try to represent as well as I can great, for the great. homeschoolers out there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was absolutely a homeschool kid, um, and there are a lot of reasons I was a homeschool kid. It was like religious reasons, but also like I was, you know, a kid in the '90s in like Inglewood, California. And if you know anything about like the history there, like that was the height of like Crips and Bloods and yeah. like gang violence there. No breweries. Yet. No, no, there were no yeah. breweries at the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so like it was like it was. And there was another part of that was like a safety thing of just like I wouldn't keep my kids out of school, so. We ended up homeschooling, and like I was, you know, a super well-behaved, good Christian homeschool kid. My mom was my best friend, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I was very sheltered in my little bubble there. Okay. Yeah. Did so? Did you have any sort of like uh, influence from that sort of like movement that was happening in that section of Los Angeles during that time? Because it was such a crazy time culturally with the hip with hip hop and yeah. all the stuff that was happening the raider gear and whatnot it was it was super interesting because like i was so encapsulated in that bubble so mm -hmm. like the other part of it um was my parents had like uh, a children's ministry so uh, the thing we always say is like i was homeschooled by traveling christian clowns and it's true <laughs> because yeah. like we, our family would go across the country and do clown and puppetry shows. So like I was out of town all the time and my only sort of connection to like social things were like was my um my church group mm -hmm. uh, my my uh youth group. And so so I never really got a chance to like have the full Inglewood mm -hmm. experience even though I was like living in it with it happening all around me. Yeah. Um there's even a I, I still remember there was one night where um we just heard some like like bangs or whatever mm -hmm. until the next morning we went out and we looked at our house and there were bullet holes all across our house because <laughs> we had just been in a drive-by and wow. it was just like and it was just a drive-by that was by our house and i'm like oh that's 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 right i do, yeah. <laughs> I do live in a rough part of town wow and yeah get that. real cruising down the street in my exactly. six four situation <laughs> exactly yeah. damn dude that's yeah. crazy yeah. uh were your parents like did they ever um yeah, was there ever like any problems in the neighborhood, or were they kind of respected as like members of the church? I mean, they were. They definitely had problems. I mean, it, it's it goes back and forth, right? Because like mm -hmm. there was the gang problem for sure, um, and so there was a lot of like protecting us of that. But it was also like. Uh, it's like I don't want to get heavy in this conversation uh -huh. on the podcast, but like there's also like at that time like 
cops were rough at that time. Uh-huh. So I still remember my dad. My dad took one day to teach me how to drive. And then the like my driver's ed and my dad teaching me to drive was like one day my teach my dad teaching me to drive and then the next day was my dad teaching me how to get pulled over mm. and so we had to have like lessons in that so like because we knew we're in L.A. in the '90s and the cops are not gonna give you the time of day so you got to make sure you do nothing wrong so yeah. so we had to like learn all that so like it was kind of that understanding the danger that we're in but also like removing us enough so that we could you know, pursue education and make sure we're not like bogged down with the, just the reality of where we were. Yeah. yeah. And well, and kudos to your parents because yeah. that is a very, that is awesome that they had the, you know, the foresight to have this plan sort of in place that got you guys to where, you know, you, you ended up eventually obviously and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, that is, that's a thing that truly, you know, in my experience <laughs> that is a heartbreaking reality you only see on like tv right the yep. thing where it's like a, it is a very real thing that i see through the television or the movie lens where right. the the black parents sit their child down and say okay you're about to start driving this is how you this is how we have to yep. do this because these this is the way our world is exactly. and it's a fucking bummer <laughs> uh, um, so for let, sure let's talk about wrestling again. <laughs> <laughs> uh no, so so moving on to like um, more middle schooly, uh, yeah. like you know you're starting to you know some some hormones are becoming a yes, thing. Yes, What were what was that like for you? Like in that middle school age range? Well, I don't want to brag or anything, but uh-huh. I was a pretty popular guy. I would okay. say I might be the most popular guy in my homeschool group. Okay. So you know, <laughs> I was rocking it. That's, I was that's the, the title of the episode. We just <laughs> found the title of the episode. I was the hottest guy in my homeschool group. Uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, but. No, I mean that was that was kind of the thing is like you've been homeschooled for so long and my mom was great because she was also like making sure that we had as many different experiences that we could of just like like I have two hours of flight time um, because my mom's like we're gonna take you on a like learn to fly an airplane and like we're gonna take you wow. on these trips and like have all the experiences that you um, that you can have because we have the freedom of homeschooling. And then when we got to the high school age, we discovered like a homeschool group that kind of functioned as like a high school, essentially. Yeah. We call them co-ops. Yeah. 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 Co-ops. Exactly. And so I did that for a couple of years and it was, it was funny because we did that. And so I decided I wanted to do theater, um, but I'm, it's a, it's a homeschool co-op. There's not like a theater program. (laughs) So there was this college right near us and they were, they had a theater program. It was like a Christian college. So I'm like, and so we worked out a deal that I could audition for their plays and everything. And so I was like, and so I got the lead in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoats. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was, so I was super proud of that. It was a wonderful experience. And then about three years ago, I was talking to my mom and I was just like rem- reminiscing about the show and everything. And I was like, yeah, I remember that. I'm so proud of that. And she's like, yeah. You were terrible. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, first of all, you're my mother. You're not supposed to say that. Right. And she was just like, yeah, you were really bad. You can't sing. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so, so it, it, it was kind of a, a funny, sad story. But this college had um, – it, it was just a very white college. Sure. And so they had this problem with this image. And so they, like, literally cast me in the lead role mm-hmm. so they could check off the diversity box. And for yeah. seven years – Years, I was on the cover of their brochure. Oh my and god! And I never actually went to that college. I was just <laughs> in their play. 
wow, <laughs> that is. I I was and in honesty, I was bad. I yeah. felt so bad for all of the other people in that play because I was not a good singer. That is bizarre. <laughs> I and I mean that's a, like in in I'm thankful for and I actually had this co- same conversation in the same room. Uh, we are recording this live from the Second City uh, with John Reyes. Uh, speaking of like diversity in yeah. the arts, entertainment, and stuff, yeah. a, a thing that a topic that you're very familiar yeah. with, I'm sure. Um, uh, specifically in comedy, I'm speaking to comedy specifically. I love diversity because of point of view. Right. I think. Great comedy comes from strong point of view, yep. and I love a point of view that's not my own at all. Yep. So that is why I'm like, we are in this interesting time right now right. where we are sort of moved on from this idea that, oh, this person's only on the show to check the diversity box, mm-hmm. and heading towards this is a show created by people who used to just check the diversity box. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a great space to be in. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, a space that, you know, art and theater is going to have to be in, mm-hmm. only because I feel like just the reality of theater and art is like you, you keep telling the same stories over and over again. Right. You get bored. And, and, it's, and at a certain point, you have to create, have different point of views for the sake of having new stories and interesting stories and different perspectives. And I want to see something new. Like, yeah. I want to see something different. And, you know, and I think new ideas are at a premium and having more voices in the room allows for new ideas to come to fruition. And that's the exciting thing that's for me. Yeah. That. Yeah, I agree. I'm so tired of seeing the out of control white teen man like <laughs> pushing it to the limit and being sent to learn a lesson. Yeah, exactly. By his rich parents. We, we, we've seen that. It's it's fine. Like it's not like I don't want to trash anybody. Like it's it's fine. It's right. good. It's just like, but I I, I kind of know where that goes. I've seen where that goes. Yeah. Like uh, I just want to see something different. Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, and there is a. I don't know. It's such a difficult topic to breach, especially, uh, you know, coming from my perspective. But uh, not to speak for other people, but there is a patronizing element of certain types of like diversity programs that don't put a premium on talent first. Right. And I think that we we do a disservice to people from marginalized communities, in my opinion, when we throw them into a situation where they are not ready just because of how they look. Right. And I I think that's 100% true because it's also about, you know, setting people up to succeed. Yes. Right? Yeah. And... Diversity should come because we want to see change, not because of the internet. Exactly. And I think that's that's where people get into trouble is I'm responding to what the internet doing, so I'm going to throw something together real quick yeah. so the internet will be happy with me yeah. versus saying, like, I'm going to take some time and do this right and set people up for success and make sure they have the tools and abilities that they need in order to do the best possible job so that we can put the best our best possible foot forward and that they can have a career beyond here, right? It's not yeah. just about, like, we have diversity on the stage, so we're we're good. And look at us. It's like, no, I want that person to have a success here, but also go on to success and have the tools to be in other areas and do well in all of those other areas. Yeah, launch pads. Yeah, absolutely. All, laying down launch pads for people. And yeah, opportunity, I think, should start from the ground up. Yep. Like, give these people, like, these people need opportunities, shots, uh, yeah. you know, 
chances if I can yeah. be gross. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hate that word. Um, the, 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 you just need to give opportunities at, for growth. Yeah. And because you don't want to just, it would be asinine to just walk out onto the street and be like, well, we've got this next big Hollywood blockbuster and we need to cast a, oh, look, that fellow over there. Right. You, exactly. son, come into this movie studio. <laughs> right. Like that. Yeah. So uh, that's a, uh, yeah, that's an interesting thing. Yep. It's, it's an interesting thing. And I think that uh, we are, you know, improving daily in as as a as a whole like yeah. of the entertainment industry yeah. um and specifically here at the second city it's uh it's been really cool like a show like um uh the vibes that yeah. is happening right now do you want to talk about that a little sure, bit sure yeah i mean it's it's the first kind of step in that direction um so the vibes is a, is a new show because at the end of the day like we've talked a lot about like diversifying audiences and there's a lot of stuff that we could do but i can sit here all day but i i think a lot of the theory theory behind diversifying audience is based on this assumption that like on a saturday night black people are sitting around with nothing to do and waiting for you to give them free tickets yeah and it's like no no they, they, we have other things that we're doing so right. like so you giving me a free ticket doesn't mean automatically you're going to just see a bunch of people that look like me in your theaters like no you also need to do something that i want to see you got to yeah. make something that appeals to me that makes me want to get out of my seat and mm-hmm. go to your theater and so the vibes is really about creating something that um uh, a unique and diverse audience wants to see something that would make them want to tell their friends about and a lot of it is too is the also the getting away from the assumption that everybody knows what improv is not everybody knows what improv is like there's there's a learning curve that's there and so it's about bringing in um folks that are like um having some of the great improvisers here at Second City perform, but then also bringing in musical acts and stand-up acts and folks that uh, maybe somebody that doesn't know improv, they'll know what a singer is. They know what a stand-up is. And so like they come there and then they get introduced to improv and they can fall in love with improv. And then it's that connecting them to like, well, if you had fun here, look at all the other things that we have going on in this building. Look yeah. at our classes that we have going on. And we start feeding those classes and diversifying from the ground up yeah. so that we have a base where we're not throwing people in to check boxes, but we just have an abundance of... Um, diverse voices and people in the system that we can just pick the best people and make sure that they're set up for success. And so the vibe is the beginning of that. Um, and it's great too, because like the other part of it is uh, 10% of all the ticket sales go to a nonprofit organization. So yes. it's also saying Very like, cool. yeah, you're doing something fun. We're having a good time, but you also know when you buy a ticket here, you're also helping impact Chicago in a positive way. Yeah, and that is kickass. Yeah. I uh, yeah, I, I I love the idea of it. I think that the partnering with the nonprofit is a great uh, cherry on top yep. of a really cool program, a really cool show. Because uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people who straight up don't know what improv is. Yep. Like I ran my college improv team, not to brag, <laughs> <laughs> but when I was doing like. I would go to uh, like opening weekend on campus, like the mm-hmm. recruitment, like things where all the clubs and organizations have their tables and are like, oh, join our thing, come to our thing, this, whatever. I would run the table for the improv team. And I worked with this guy 
who was in like one of like the like the predominantly black fraternities on mm-hmm. campus. I worked with him in the box office and he came by with some of his uh, fraternity brothers and I was like, you guys interested in improv? <laughs> and I've never felt more stupid in my <laughs> life because they said, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and they all started making fun of me. They started making fun of my hair and I rolled with it and I started like, we had, a, it was like a really funny exchange. And the only reference that i could give them for it was the show wild and out on mtv Mm -hmm. and uh that was like once i said that they kind of like oh so it's like Uh, off the top of your head and i was like yes so you absolutely do know what i'm talking about (laughs) you just didn't learn it out of a book with del close's (laughs) face on it like i did which is better (laughs) uh that's awesome uh that all all that all good things all good things that are happening uh so let's let's jump back. Uh, we were we were in middle school. Yep. Uh, you, you were the stud of your, <laughs> of your homeschool, homeschool co-op. Yep. Uh, how were uh, so? Have you was this where you uh, through doing that weird college theater experience yeah. as a as a youngster? Is that where the performing bug hit, or would you say like? Yeah. So it was it was really interesting because I actually so it's a weird thing growing up in Los Angeles um, because like. It's just it's a different atmosphere, right? Mm-hmm. So like, if you're a kid in a, in Los Angeles, you are a kid actor. Like everybody's an actor. Like yeah, it, like it's yeah. it, it does that. And there's all these like little little things that people do. Like somebody like if you're at a, if you're going to a party, um, you never carpool. And the reason you never carpool is because you're gonna get a text about a better party, and you may not want to bring your friends. And so you always <laughs> have to go by yourself. And like somebody. If you are talking to somebody in L.A., like the uh, within the first three questions, they will either ask you what your job is or what kind of car you drive, and it's the same question because the question is, are you? Is it worth my time to be talking to you? Yeah. There could be somebody at this party that can do more for me at this party. There's these little like L.A. intricacies and okay, like yeah. I- idioms, and so. Growing up in that, I was always had like a very bad reaction to the art. I was very like, I don't want to do the arts. I don't want to do acting. I don't want to be one of those people. Uh, the weird thing was we were super into puppetry and clowning, right? And, and yeah, and you're touring the country, so, but I'm like, that's yeah. that's not art. So um, <laughs> this is saving lives. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I never got into it. It was only until I moved to Atlanta in my twenties that. I started doing it because, you know, in Atlanta, people aren't doing particularly improv. No one's doing improv or comedy to get famous. You're doing it because it's fun and you're Mm -hmm. having a good time. And it's just such a wonderful atmosphere. And I met new friends. And so it was really the 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 art of improv and theater. And then improv taught me to take chances. And that's when I started acting and writing. And I discovered that I loved it in that sort of environment. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can definitely see that where it's like when you're oversaturated with the thing. Right. It's not cool. Similar to I'm from rural Missouri. I don't think farming's that cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to go herd cattle all day. I've been there, done that. You know. So no, that that makes perfect sense. That's. Uh, did you have a as somebody you know of the comedic persuasion? Right. Did you have a uh, Peter Parker got bit by the spider moment for your for comedy? Like where you realized you were funny, <laughs> like a superhero origin moment. I, you know what? I I don't know that it, I had a moment as much as it was just it was the first time I got a laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like that you know improv grad show where you had that like 
audience member laughed at your joke and you had that and i had that moment of like oh this is a rush this is this is exciting i love this feeling and i remember distinctly um I was so nervous about being on stage that what I did was before the show, like 10 minutes before the show, I went to the audience and I just like introduced myself to the front row. And I <laughs> yeah. just like shook my hands with each person in the front row because I'm like, I just need to feel like I have friends that mm-hmm. are watching me. <laughs> so if I meet them, then they'll feel like friends and I'll feel more comfortable. Yeah. And That's like, adorable. As, yeah. And so like I had that moment, but then as you start to do improv and start listening and connecting, you start realizing that that audience is your friend and you can mm-hmm. almost have this sort of conversation where like it's it almost feels like they're, they're your third buddy, right? If you're on in a scene with two people and you're like cracking each other up, and then that audience is cracking up, it's like we're all in on this joke and we're having a good time, and it feels like you're communicating and like hanging out with them. And so yeah. that was those those types of moments were like that's where I realized I love doing improv. That's awesome. That because yeah. that is what it's all about is when you feel like you're having a party where everyone's invited. Exactly. Like exactly. those are the best nights of improv. Mm-hmm. And that's how I cuz I haven't done much improv lately. Uh it's been mostly stand up like I've sort of shifted focus like mm-hmm. especially out in LA, you know. There yeah. is improv and I'll probably eventually start, you know, hitting some improv writers again but right now it's almost all Mm stand-up and i sort of try to bring that mentality to stand-up where the audience is my scene partner yeah so it's like i'm up here by myself but the audience is also you know it's a give and a take because i'm not one of those like very like technical my jokes like are are scientific formulas Mm -hmm. comedians i'm it's a very energy based and riffing and talking to this person that the light's hitting in a certain way and trying to make it a unique experience for those people. And that's the beauty of improv is it is a unique experience every single time we do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that, I think it's also like, I I view, (laughs) this is a weird analogy, but I view improv as like a hammer, right? Mm -hmm. It's this thing that's great. It should be in your toolbox, but like it also allows you to do so many other things, yeah, right? Because okay. improv is directing, it's writing, it's acting, it's all of those things rolled up into one. And so it allows you to work those muscles and then you can build your artistic um, toolbox from that. And that having that foundation and that hammer in your toolbox of improv, I think, works in so many different areas for sure yeah it's it works in areas outside of entertainment oh yeah it works that we have an entire friggin department (laughs) you know is all about that and it's uh yeah it is this magical cool thing i've got my yes and tattoo here (laughs) admittedly Uh, nice (laughs) i am outing myself as having a yes and tattoo but i will say it's my grandpa's handwriting so it's like a sentimental thing for my grandpa that's more than anything else uh i'm also a nerd um so whenever you were uh getting into like high school age and things like that uh typically for the homeschool kids that i know Mm -hmm. that is when you either doubled down and were yeah i'm really a homeschool kid i'm about this or you met a kid from a from a public school and said (laughs) oh that's what i want to be what 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 type of uh, path did you well i i I could not do the double down because the thing about my homeschool group when you double down that also means you got married so like yeah oh, yeah because yeah, we were all we were all very much of that like you can't have sex until you're married absolutely so you've got a bunch of horny eighteen year olds that are just like I'm in love with you and want to spend the rest of <laughs> you like are you are yeah. you really no. no you're probably not uh, so I I did not get married at that time and was like that's dumb I'm not gonna do that 
Um, and then I kind of like, once I got out of that, I kind of had this moment where, like I talked about, like kind of being in that bubble, I was like, man, there's so much of life that I haven't experienced. And so I kind of had my, uh, it's a little cliche, but like, it's my year of yes. It's that idea of like, if someone invites me to do something to a party, to an event, to something like, unless it's going to be like dangerous or illegal, mm -hmm. I'm going to say yes to everything, regardless of if I like it or not. And I'm just going to try to experience as many different things as I possibly could. Great advice. Yeah. yeah. And so that's when I started getting into the wrestling thing. I was uh, the Coca-Cola polar bear for a little while. Really? I, uh, I started for six months, uh, directed rap videos for terrible rappers. Okay. Um, uh, I was just like any sort of job or adventure I could find. I'm like, let's give it a shot and see what happens. When you say you were the Coca-Cola polar bear, right. were you in a suit like on Sunset on like Hollywood Boulevard? Or no, no. <laughs> no, I worked for the world of Coca-Cola. Uh -huh. And I don't know if you've ever seen, this is a weird reference. I don't know if you've ever seen this TV show, Bear in a Big Blue House. Of course I have. Okay. He says goodnight to the moon every right, night. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that Kasia puppet, um, they replicated that and turned it into the Coca-Cola polar bear. And so I was inside that and basically worked that puppet every day in the wow. world of Coke Museum and traveled to like, and then they also like would like for like uh, Coca-Cola board meetings. They wanted the Coca-Cola bear there. So I like traveled to New York and New Orleans <laughs> and I would get in the costume for an hour and then walk around New Orleans on Coca-Cola's dime. You and... went on tour as the Coca-Cola <laughs> polar bear. I did. That needs I... to be at the top of all of your any sort of correspondence. <laughs> That's awesome. I did. It was such a weird gig. Uh, wow, yeah. But it was super fun. But that was, I do remember distinctly because I went to it was New Orleans, mm -hmm. and I was there, and I had to be there. I was there for two days, but I had like one hour in the Coca-Cola Polar Bear, and then I had the rest of the time. And so I'm like, you know what? I just wanna, I want to – I want to go on a date in New Orleans. I want to go – so like yeah. went on – I think it was OK Cupid, and I'm just like – First person to say yes to me, I'm going on a date with him because I'm going on a date in New Orleans. <laughs> and so I, I went on a date with this with this woman, and we had drinks. We were just talking, and she's like, so I was like, so what do you do for a living? She's like, I'm an FBI. I work for the FBI. And I'm like, this is what the rest of this date's going to be. Yeah. Just me asking yeah, yeah, you yeah. about, like, what is it like working for the FBI? So I just, like, quickly turned into this, like, oh, do you have a gun? You ever shot anybody? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm sure she was annoyed by the end of it, but I had a great time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah as most dates go. Yeah, that's, that is, wow. You, yeah. What a year of yes. What, that, that, you, you really went out and did it. It's I, not just like, yeah, I guess I'll go to the birthday party oh, and yeah. stay out a little late on a school night. Huh. No, yeah, it was all kinds of stuff. But like that was like uh, like that idea of like, all right, I got to find a new career and do a new thing. And so because mm -hmm. at that point I had been. I, the other thing I can say is I was the children's pastor for the second largest church in America. Wow. Yeah. Really? And so, yeah. So that was an adventure all by itself. But I kind of got to the point where I kind of burned out on that. And mm -hmm. so I was kind of like, well, if I'm this, if this is the second largest church, there's only one other job that pays more than this. So if I don't <laughs> yeah. like this, then I'm probably not going to like that. So that's great. I might need to. Yeah. yeah, that's great logic. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I might need to find a new career. So a lot of that was like finding that new career and what I wanted to do next. Amazing. Huh. That's, uh, th see, I had always like, as somebody who I've been always been very animated mm -hmm. very like comfortable talking to people and all this stuff. Like I, my little comedy origin story is I watched the mask when I was three years old mm -hmm. with Jim Carrey and that was it. 
like that was <laughs> it for me. I was like, oh, I'm going to be that. I don't right. care what it takes. I'm going to be that. Right. So um, for a long time, whenever I was at my like the height of my church going experience, mm-hmm. I was like, I never said it out loud, but like my grandma would talk about it a lot. And then I would have it in my head. Being a youth pastor seems like a cool idea. <laughs> like, cause I get to, cause I had a very funny youth pastor right. that I still have a great relationship with. Yeah. Uh, he's a really cool dude. Shout out to Justin Chandler, uh, Pastor Justin. <laughs> and uh, he just sounds like you, a cool guy. Yeah, you, you, but you always say pastor in the first name, which yeah. I always thought is like a weird youth pastor thing. Yeah, it is a very weird, that is very <laughs> weird and, and a unique to youth pastors. But they, uh, they, he, um, yeah, he made it fun, and I was yeah. like, this could be something fun that I do, but I quickly realized that's not, it's kind of <laughs> limiting, you yeah. know? Yeah, So that's, uh, do you, um, so whenever you're in, like, your, like, like these years, like, your teen years yeah. and whatever, sports person at all? We, yeah, okay. it was also weird because, like, I, my house, my, I have a brother and a dad, and so, like, it was a very male-centric house, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, none of them were into sports and oh, so okay. yeah so we were a very weird family that so i was but i was the i was the one weird one that like i loved football i love football cool. i love playing sports and stuff like that so yeah so i i grew up enjoying sports quite a bit love that did you play any did, did was there a homeschool league of any kind <laughs> no but i i did i played like in like park leagues i think i played yeah. like probably every sport like for one season at some point awesome. i was never great at any of them but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i did i did definitely try to play as many as i could see that is a great way to do it mm-hmm. a great way to do it is to admittedly not be great at it and just have fun <laughs> park leagues i played football for almost 10 years oh, and wow. it uh I remained not. I remained very okay at it the entire time. <laughs> did not. Did not pick up a helmet after senior year of high school, which I yeah. think is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, are you still a football fan? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's okay. weird because I'm actually having to like. Football is like a soap opera. It's mm-hmm. like you can watch it and you remember all the characters, and yeah. then you like go away from it for a while. And you have to like catch back up on like what's going on and that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. So like the last year, I've been like getting back into football again because I, I have really been laid off laying off of it for a little while um but yeah now i'm um and also weirdly madden helps a lot oh yeah yeah like a good you, madden game will will turn the tide for you exactly and you'll catch you up on who's who and all that mm-hmm. stuff yeah what's your what's your team i mean for <laughs> for for just the reality of it was like the falcons were you know my team and it's yeah it was difficult. It's difficult being a Falcon yeah, fan. It's, yeah, it's, that's uh, it's. that's a tough franchise. <laughs> which I and nobody believes me anymore. But as a Chiefs fan, mm-hmm. Kansas City Chiefs fan, now everything seems golden. Right? Yeah. No, that was a there. You had, most of that time was rough. Yeah, my entire life, I <laughs> I was not around for the Joe Montana like brief yeah. stint. Yeah. When I like became conscious of football, it was Trent Green, <laughs> and uh, we did have like the the shitty thing about the Chiefs is we had like a really good team, but we're just terrible at a fo- at, for whatever reason a terrible team <laughs> at the same time because there right. was a point where we had uh, Priest Holmes as our running back, Tony mm, Gonzalez, yeah, I remember that oh, uh, Dante yeah. Hall. Oh wow, that was such a good team mm-hmm. yeah but it was like but it's like one of those teams that they just couldn't win that game they nope. couldn't get over that 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 playoff hump yeah trent green wasn't going to be the guy that took us there yeah. and we the, the the chiefs have had two quarterbacks in their entire history that's len dawson and <laughs> patrick mahomes <laughs> everything in between was just uh, background noise basically so yeah i am enjoying my time now but i can sympathize with the very very bleak years where it's like oh 
All right, well, we're going to waste the number one pick in the draft on another defensive lineman. Sick. <laughs> well, that's the rough thing about being an Atlanta fan. Like, it, being an Atlanta fan in across the board is like you'll have some incredible some incredible teams like some yeah. incredible talent on the hawks on the braves and but every single time the moment you care they will break your heart they yep. will always break your heart That's, and it's yeah. it's rough it's rough but like as a kid those 49ers was okay. like that was because i was i was i was around i was in la during the Joe Montana, Steve Young years, Ooh, yeah, that's those and, are good years. Yeah, those were those <laughs> were great years. years. Yeah. And then being there for the like the Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal's mm-hmm. stuff, like yeah, those were those are some uh, nice sports times. Good sports times, absolutely. Yeah. That's and God, yeah, it is a damn shame about Atlanta because it's such a great like town for sports. Like yeah. it, Atlanta deserves a great sports. Team. It's the capital of the South. Yeah. Like it, it deserves to have a great sports team and it's come close. The Michael Vick stuff also is yeah. like here comes this savior and then But you know the most frustrating thing? I don't know if you've seen he recently did a documentary. That, I, I watched the documentary. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. But like it, it's super frustrating because you listen to him and he's like I didn't look at the playbook. Yeah. Like I, I didn't study for it. I didn't and it's just like if you had just Set down and focused. Like, how good could you have been if you just took it seriously? Sky's the limit. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we might be seeing that a little bit with Lamar Jackson, just yeah. a little bit yeah. because they are not the same physical specimen. Yeah. Michael Vick and Bo Jackson might be the two greatest like God gifted talent yes. athletes to ever walk the face of the earth, let yes. alone play football. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah, and I, I now Bo Jackson, I feel sorry about because he's one of those guys. Like he was smart, he was talented, and he did the work. Like he yep. put in the work. He was just on the most terrible team ever, yeah. constantly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Perennially. Yeah. Well, and the and also I watched. The, did you see the uh, thirty for thirty about Bo Jackson? No, I don't think I've seen that. It's one. really good. Okay, it's because you know he's such a he's almost a mythological character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they break it down in there. You'll feel extra bad for him because his career-ending injury. He only got that injury because he's Bo Jackson. Hmm. The way because he was running and a guy went to ta- grab his leg to make a tackle and he pulled out of it mm-hmm. and that separated like it ripped the muscle from the bone. Oh. A normal human being or even a normal NFL player, that would have just been a leg tackle. Mm-hmm. But because Bo's muscle fiber was so powerful, <laughs> that's why it separated itself <laughs> from the bone. <laughs> Oh my God! Crazy life. Oh, uh, so, uh, where where'd you go to college? Let's get to it. Uh, yeah, I was uh, went to Georgia Military College for okay. my first two years, and then my final two years was uh, uh, Georgia State University. Cool. Uh, yeah. Go Bulldogs. Uh, yes, they were Bulldogs. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I think did. so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never went to a game. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, that's I, I have a weird thing about college mascots where it's like my one like savant thing where I'm like, oh, and uh, go that thing. But in fairness, if you say college football team and you don't know it, you can pretty much guess it's probably going to be a Bulldog. Like, Bulldog, a, Tiger. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah there are like three that every college uses. Yeah. there could. It, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I reserve the right to be wrong. Uh, Georgia Military College. Was service of any kind required no, with that? Okay, no. it was. It was literally because we traveled so much. Because at the time, I was still traveling and doing the puppet and clown thing. Oh, okay, and they had a flexible enough schedule to let me do that because they had to work with military people. Cool, and they had to work with military people, and then this kid from LA <laughs> exactly. who does puppets. <laughs> same thing, basically the same. You thing. don't understand. I'm the Coca Cola polar bear, so I understand Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm doing you a favor. Here. That's great. Uh, so, were you? Uh, what you study? I studied marketing. I got a degree in marketing. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to get a practical degree. Well, I started yeah. with accounting and was like, that's the too practical. practical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is too practical. Yeah. And then I switched to um, marketing. Awesome. So did you and did you discover the, the improv scene in Atlanta during your college years? Mm, yeah. Georgia well, yeah. Because I, I definitely discovered it. Like, I, I would say actually before because I like went to college for a little while. I dropped out for a while, discovered improv, and then went back into college again. Um, and got finished up my degree. Um, so like I, so we didn't actually have, so college or so improv was never like part of my school. It was really part of like my social scene. Like when I was out uh, in the world, that's the gotcha. place that I wanted to hang out and be. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah that, I mean, it's a great, it's a great social scene. Yes. Cause I, as somebody who has mostly improviser and comedy friends, <laughs> it's uh, the most fun. Did you, um, was there a college improv team of any kind, or was it all like out off, off campus type? Yeah, of it was. Stuff it was into? for me. It, I I got lucky in that. I don't know, lucky, but like I got my. So the theater that I worked at, we had like an improv. They had like you know their main stage cast or mm-hmm. whatever, um, and so. I went through levels. There are four levels, and when I went through my four levels, they—that's when they introduced their junior league. Um, oh, they're okay. like var, junior varsity group, and so literally everybody in my level four immediately made it into the cast of the theater. <laughs> and cool. so I was just like, "Well, I am great now." Mm-hmm. Little did I know, I was terrible still for <laughs> another couple yeah. of years. Um, but like, it was great because I kind of almost immediately got into a theater and just kind of developed all my whole process through that theater. Yeah, reps yeah. are yeah. so important yeah. when you're doing improv. That's, Absolutely. Especially for improv teams, I always say uh, chemistry and reps yep. make the greatest improv teams of all time. If you like each other and you perform enough with each other, you are going to make magic on stage. Absolutely. It's because it, it's it's one of those things where like you can teach someone all of the you can, like someone could memorize the improv books the and all that kind of stuff, but it's not about memorization or understanding, it's about muscle memory. Yeah. It's about I have to relearn something and then make it my reflex because you don't have enough time to think on stage. No. It has to be a reflex. And the only way to get that is continue rep- repetition and yep. you can only do that just by doing a bunch of shows. Yeah. A Reading bunch of each other's minds. A bunch of terrible, terrible shows. Absolutely. Until, yeah. <laughs> until, you're, until they're not terrible anymore. Yeah. That is how we, uh, so my college improv team, Missouri State Improv, shout out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we um, sort of built it, me and a few other people because when, so in my hometown in Spring, in like the Springfield, Missouri area, mm-hmm. there was this theater called the Skinny Improv, mm-hmm. and it was this really popular improv theater in the downtown uh, area. It, they had like commercials that would play on the local channels and stuff, <laughs> and they would come and do like little workshops and, and stuff at the schools. So I had been loving improv most of my life, yeah. for, and like knew about it. I was a theater kid in high school as well as a football player and all that. So like I like loved improv. I get to college. And I'm not able to join the improv team right away because I was in this BFA acting program mm. where for your first semester, you're not allowed to perform outside of class at all because they're breaking you down, which <laughs> I get it. Right. Um, 
But when I got to college my freshman year, it was a uh, short-form team called Grin and Barrett because our mascot <laughs> was the Bears. <laughs> and they performed maybe once a semester in a small little black box theater to a house of about 11 people. <laughs> and so it wasn't really a team that you desired to uh, be on. Yeah. But I was already involved with this group downtown that had emerged. So the skinny closed down for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And then Moon City Improv emerged, which was like mm. to take its place. So I had auditioned and got cast in like the main stage cast for them when I was 18 so I started working with Moon City fell in love with long form because that we did long form shows the guy who was running it was teaching out of the UCB book Um, and so then fast forward to I meet my buddy Doyle who transfers to Missouri State from Mizzou uh, where he was a part of Mizzou Improv which Mm -hmm. Mizzou is University of Missouri Um, and they have this long, great tradition. A lot of their alums live here and have been on many various Herald teams, Torcos, whatever. Right. Um, so he basically copy-pasted their great format mm-hmm. and applied it to our campus and said, this team as it is sucks. Right. I want to do long weekly long-form shows with a right. workshop attached. Mm-hmm. So I helped like him with that from not even being on the team, just being a person who loves long-form and short-form both. Right. I was like, well, let's do both. We make it into this thing, weekly shows. We start off maybe 30 people in the audience consistently. Pretty cool. By the time I graduated, we were having over 250 people every week coming out for these improv shows. Right. And that is what convinced me I got to move to Chicago because mm. I had been planning on L.A. or New York or whatever, you know, acting, stand-up, right. whatever it is. I knew I was going to do comedy, but also, like, the actor thing. Mm-hmm. But I was like, no, Chicago, I want to come here with my buddies from the imp- college improv team. We moved up together mm-hmm. because I have this great group around me that we all know each other, we love each other, we know each other's performance style, and we can go up there and learn, and we can learn it the right way. Because here in Chicago, similar to Atlanta, it's a place where there are great teachers Mm -hmm. and great performers doing it for the love of the game. Yep. Yeah. And I think that is really important for like growth, yes. and especially for uh, a young person. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Because it's, it's, it, because it just takes so much patience, right? Mm-hmm. It takes so much time. It takes, you, you have to do it because it's fun. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think at the, at the end of the day, if it's not fun, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And, and you need to have that space to do the fun stuff, to have a good time, to make it, because you need that foundation too, because at a certain point, it's going to be hard. Like as you kind of move through your career, it's going to be hard. You have to have that foundation of like, why am I doing this? And yeah. It's got to be that, that fun, that enjoyment, that thrill that you get from doing improv. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where does, uh, so sort of, uh, moving on from like the college stuff, where does dad's garage come in? Dad's garage. Yeah. So did finished, uh, college. Um, then, um, Moved to from L.A. to Tulsa, Oklahoma for like two years. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Okay. And then moved from Tulsa to Atlanta, Georgia. And so Atlanta was like, I'm a pretty outgoing person. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, like my first couple of months in Atlanta, I had the hardest time making friends and like oh, meeting man. people. And so I went to dad's garage, start watching improv and enjoying that. And so somebody said like, a great way to meet friends to take improv classes mm-hmm. and so, still is <laughs> yeah exactly so I started doing that and and between loving improv and those classes like kind of creating my social group that's kind of what connected me to dad's garage and then dad's garage was very much a place that kind of like 
the it was very uh, talent centered in the sense of the uh, new shows was created from the talent. And so there is all this opportunity to experiment and to try new things and to take some risks. And it was just fun to try that and to see that and to experience that. And that's what kind of made me fall in love with the format and the theater and everything. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So it sort of became your. Your clubhouse, yeah, like your absolutely. your place where you felt like you belonged. Absolutely, like yeah. it's like you know, it's a great place where when you go to see a show, but then you never actually get into the show because you're out front, like at the bar, hanging out with people. Yeah, you just keep yeah. getting in conversations. You're like, I totally missed the show, and it's like, yeah, like that because that it's it's my clubhouse. It's where yeah. I go. I'm bored on tonight. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna run into somebody I know. So you go down there and you hang out, and that's so cool. Yeah, it's such a great atmosphere. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That's uh, and and you uh, w- at what point did you sort of like start to go from like kid hanging out at the bar like chilling at the shows to maybe doing the shows to like moving up as like uh eventually what what was your title executive director uh yeah i was was artistic director artistic director yeah yes yeah i mean so (laughs) it was it was a weird thing because i was the marketing director for the theater first like right Mm -hmm. after i finished up um went back to college got my degree in marketing um and then became the marketing director for dad's garage and it was great because I was a performer and a marketing director, so I kind of got the best of both worlds. But it also like allowed me to kind of start being in that leadership staff and like mm-hmm. seeing the inner workings of it and like how to how to lead a theater and how to lead an improv theater specifically. And so, did that for about five years. Um, then went to the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, the, the big regional theater out there. Worked okay. there for a year in audience development, um, and then came back to and then. The guy who was running Dad's, uh, the artistic director, he was stepping down, and he like came to me, and he's like, "I want you to take my place. I, I want to. I want to go to the board of directors and recommend you." And I'm like, "I. That's not <laughs> me." Um, and he's like, "I think you'd be the perfect person to do it." And so, um, I'm like, "All right, I'm gonna go do it." And so, um, I went through it and became the artistic director there, and just had an amazing experience uh, getting to like leave the theater and then eventually leading it through the pandemic and all the things that go along with that. And, you know, and then ended up here in second city. Yeah. Wow. That is, I um, it, just the idea of leading an improv theater <laughs> is something that is uh, a, a, almost a funny, funny <laughs> of itself because the, the whole sort of vibe of improv is we're just making it up as we go along. <laughs> and that is why there have been thousands and thousands <laughs> of failed improv theaters. That is correct. Yes. Well, because like being a leader of an improv theater isn't about like, these are my shows, this is my theater, I'm commander in chief. It's really about setting guardrails mm-hmm. and getting setting those guardrails, giving your performers a place to play, but also creating a safe place to play and so you want to give them that freedom to like do something crazy do something wild but like here's where that line is and Mm -hmm. making that line clear and so uh, it's 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 excellent everybody's like oh man it'd be cool to run a big improv theater like no it's mostly saying no to people it's mostly saying no or reprimanding people or firing people when they cross those lines Mm -hmm. or you have you're essentially having to be the heavy so that everyone else can have fun playing yeah 
It's yeah, yeah you're you're the adult in yes, the room. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You want to facilitate. You want to both facilitate and foster an environment where people can have like childlike joy and fun, <laughs> while also being a strict disciplinarian that yes. will uh, dress down a grown man <laughs> to his face. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. So that's that's kind of the. The thing you have to balance. Yeah, that's good advice because, you know, there are probably, you know, people out there listening right now that love improv and want to make improv their job in a way that's not just like getting up and doing shows for five bucks a pop or whatever. Yeah. That uh, could Like what sort of advice do you think that you've cultivated throughout your career going starting from like the ground up, just yeah. hanging and then getting in the marketing side of things and then eventually growing into now, arguably, I'd say the biggest improv theater in the world. Yeah. Yep. I mean, the, the the thing is, the easy part is saying yes, the hard part is saying no. Mm -hmm. And and it's about picking your spots of saying no. And I think a lot of times the trouble comes when you're trying to be friends with everyone mm -hmm. and you're trying to get everyone to like you and you're trying to make everyone happy. I think a lot of the problems and, and you're you're trying to you hold on to this idea that person a b or c if they leave then our theater is sunk and we can't live without this person so i'm going yeah. to make um excuses or uh, allow them to get away with stuff that i know they shouldn't get away with because if they leave then we're not going to be good And it's like no you have to trust your system trust your new talent trust the fact that you can develop new talent and be able to say if a person crosses a line there it's time to move on yep. and regardless of how funny they are how talented they are you can't you can you curse on here yes sir. okay great okay great <laughs> uh, Please but like do. like we we're, we're just we you have to um we're no longer in a place that we can tolerate assholes anymore yeah and we've tolerated assholes as a community for way too long and we can't afford it because the price is too high the yep. price of tolerating assholes is way too high. Yeah, and so and so that's that's what you're having to go into because the fun stuff will happen, the comedy will happen, the jokes will happen. It's the no, it's the I have bad news. It's the I have to fire you. That's the tough part. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That it's and that's the keen business mind right. of it because and that's why I feel a lot of arts organizations crumple is because it's artists leading artists right and it's there's no one is willing to step up and be the bad person right and uh you know make sure the books are balanced <laughs> and the creepy bartender gets fired even though he's your cousin's best friend's funniest uh, sketch comedy whatever the right. hell yeah um yeah, no, I mean, that's spot on. Like you, like you said, it's harder to say no, obviously, in our art form, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, it's drilled to not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which, that's a whole debate in and of itself. <laughs> but uh, what was, like, your favorite memory from Dad's Garage? Because that is, you know, it's a... It's a fun. It, it from what I've like looked up and researched yeah. and what it's a fun place to just do some wacky shit, some really <laughs> cool shit. Like, what was one of your favorite projects, memories, or whatever from that time? Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it crosses that spectrum, right? So there's the the fun, the fun shit. There's like um, we uh, so we we do improv, but we also do scripted plays. Yes, um, and so. Um, the first play that I did was uh, essentially it was a Dragon Con the play, and it was okay. like yeah, so it's like it was essentially the story of four people and their experience. For those Atlanta, we do have Dragon Con. Most places call it Comic Con. Yep. Um, it was 
five people in their adventure through the Comic-Con experience. And that was the play. And it was like, it was one of those things where it was like super nerdy. And I'm like, I don't know how to do it. And it ended up being like one of the most, and it was my first time writing a play. Oh, you wrote it as yeah. well. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it's me and um, three other folks. Uh, we wrote the, the play together, kind of based on our own experiences going to Dragon Con every year. And so it was one of the most financially successful plays that, the, the theater had done so that was like that and that was super fun it was super ridiculous and stupid mm-hmm. and just sounds like tons it, yeah. of tons of stupid joke and nerd references uh and it was super fun and i had like that was one of my like happiest memories um but then there's also like the show that i was proudest of like those moments where it's like we're doing improv but we're doing it in a way that you know is actually making an impact um so um we had um the group we had an i had an improv group that was at dad's garage made up of dad's garage performers called dark side of the room and so it was a group of all black performers and our format would be we would take a famous movie indiana jones star wars whatever and we would all do a long form set of what all the black people were doing while that movie was happening (laughs) (laughs) and and it was it was such a (laughs) it was such a fun like sort of experience but i think one of the coolest things was um we have a, a museum of civil and human rights in atlanta and they had us come out and it was all about like introducing a new art form to a new audience and like the impact that we had made in these folks lives so we could we could have these moments where we were actually making a social impact from the comedy that we were doing um which you know hadn't happened before um we I did a play uh, my other play that I wrote was um a play called Black Nerd and that was kind of like the again another nerd play, but it was like it was <laughs> yeah. like the the nerd play from the black experience, and so it was um, it was another one that was like it was a huge risk because the theater hadn't done a lot of plays that were like really focused on the black experience and like how would that work, and so to have that work and to have the theater take a chance on me and to give me the shot to do it, and then to have it pay off in such of a big way of like the the play did very well and like won some of the theater's first like serious theater awards that the theater had never because it's an improv theater and yeah. so like being able to do that it's like okay proud of the work that I did but then also proud of like making a positive impact and taking okay, allowing people to take the theater that I worked at that was funny and great a little bit more serious because we were doing some stuff that was um, we could really be proud of that and is so, so cool especially yeah. that it's coming from talking about POV yeah your one of your proudest moments and most successful like from an audience and feet critical standpoint yeah. was you taking your POV out of your brain and throwing it on stage yeah that's absolutely. a cool ass thing that's um that I so when you go to a place like this like a dad's garage mm-hmm. a um, a place that you are free to experiment and whatnot that is such a special environment. Yeah. Uh, we had a place here in Chicago that is gone now. It, it did not. It it died the week before the pandemic. <laughs> oh, oh it really? It was called the Crowd Theater. Oh, okay. It was in Uptown, and it was this. I gotta shout out the Crowd. It was this like little nonprofit, like uh, a real like inmates running the asylum, <laughs> I, like type of situation mm-hmm. where. There was this like legend. There was this show called Midnight Night where it was just 
I saw some of the wackiest shit in my life. Like there was Stone Cold Steve Austin improv where a team came out dressed like Stone Cold Steve Austin and a, a running bit throughout the whole show was somebody was assembling Ikea furniture in right. front of the stage. There was uh, improvised Deadliest Catch where we just went out onto the sidewalk with buckets of water and this girl tried to like mo- improvise a monologue in a raincoat while we threw water. All of that is so fun and feels like the stuff that you hear about as a comedy nerd growing up. Like right. these are the wacky memories we hear about. Right. Transitioning away from that world, uh, sort of coming towards like the end, the modern day that we're in right now yeah. of the of the interview. What was it like when you found out you were about to become the artistic director <laughs> or the executive producer? Sorry, for the fucking second city during. The most tumultuous, <laughs> crazy. They said, you are the captain of this boat. The boat is not only on fire. There are snakes and tigers running around the boat that you now have to catch with your bare hands. Good luck. Talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is it is the extremes on the feeling spectrums. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's like, on one hand, it's pride and, and excitement and all that. It's also a weird thing, too, because, like, you know, when you get a new job... Um, you like telling your friends about it and like cheering with your friends and all that kind of stuff. And it's a it's weird getting this job because if I got it two years ago and I was like, I'm the executive producer of Second City, everybody would be like, wow, that's incredible. That's amazing. That's mm-hmm. And then I, I got it here and people are like, why? Why did you apply for that? Um, but it was also like it, at the same time, it was also exciting, right? Because in these moments where things are on fire and tumultuous and everything's going crazy, there is this level of this is where great things happen, right? Mm-hmm. These are this is where like you think about the Great Depression um, and how terrible that was, but how many companies, organizations, how many um, policies that are now in place that have lived on came out of all of that. Um, insanity that rough time for America and I feel like the same thing is true for uh, comedy is like yeah this was a terrible time but the things that we t- uh, that are developed here the things that we learn the things that we do are going to be the things that impact our community for the next 20 to 30 years mm-hmm. and knowing that it was going to be a difficult situation the opportunity to literally in the most literal sense of the word, word be a part of history uh, you can't pass up that moment. You can't nope. walk away from that moment. And however it pans out, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that story that's told about what the next version, what the next world of comedy uh, looks like. Yeah. God damn, it's like Dusty Rhodes said, hard times make better men. <laughs> it's so true. Like you're, so true. You're spot on there with that. And as someone who was... Fortunate and, you know, unfortunate enough to have experienced a small part because, you know, I, I moved to Chicago in 2017, got the job at Second City almost immediately after moving here, mm-hmm. experiencing the culture that was this business pre-pandemic mm-hmm. and pre-growing um, pains and reckonings with our very sordid and rough and difficult past and yeah. present and mm-hmm. all this stuff and building towards a better future, I love this place Mm -hmm. i loved it and i love it and i love it still because it has such great potential it has such great 
the, the the sky's the limit for a place like this because it's such a unique thing to have survived this long. Yeah. And while there are so many dark spots in our past, a lot of bright spots too. Yeah. And a lot of br- a lot of bright spots in the future. And so I I completely see what you're saying when it's like my friends two years ago would have been like, wow, that's awesome. And now it's like, oh, shit, really? But also two years ago, who knows how long, you know, any of us would have lasted at a place because it was in such a place where no one had given us a gut check. Yeah. In 60 years. Yeah. So, and I think gut checks are extremely important. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's been, it, it, and it has to be so fun that you're actually getting to produce live theater. Again. Yes. Like, cause yeah. you know, when you got the job, it was like you were planning a birthday party that you didn't know like, <laughs> when the actual party exactly. was going to be. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great actually being able to do stuff, coming up with new shows. And I mean, it's going to be exciting as we move forward to do it even more. Like, and it's yeah. only going to get bigger and better. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Well, I am sincerely so grateful and thankful for you doing this and for the fact that you're the captain uh, one of the cap we'll say a co-captain a co-captain of multiple captains yes of this ship that is our home the second city a place we love a place we hate um yeah it's just a it's a big messed up family no. and uh <laughs> we are so happy that you're a part of it now and that like you said history Yep. This is going to be in the books. Yep. Like we, we, this, this conversation might be in the books. One day. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? This is Absolutely. me begging, please, whoever's in charge of the book, please. We need the publicity. Um, so anyway, John, wrapping up. This is how we end the show. Okay. I always ask one final question, and it is: if you could go back in time to a version of John mm-hmm. that was at his most lost, his most directionless. I always say it's like you're climbing up a mountain and your map has just been blown out of your hands by right. the wind. You don't have to say the time. You don't have to specify right. when this time is in your life. If you could go back, what concise piece of advice would you give to that former version of yourself to give him the strength to keep walking? I would, I would, I would look myself in the eye and I would say, eh, stop crying. It's going to be fine. <laughs> 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 that is a refreshing answer. <laughs> It'll be fine. Relax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get over yourself. Yep. Get over yourself. It'll be fine. Relax. I think we can all uh, learn something from that. Uh, well, again, John, thanks so much for doing the show. Uh, let the kids know where they can find you, if uh, where you'd like to be found on social media, if you'd like to be found. Sure. I'm John Carr on Facebook. Uh, John <laughs> John Carr Jr. on Instagram. Follow him on Instagram. Don't add him on Facebook. Yeah. He's, he gets enough of that. I got, I got a lot of that. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're connected on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Follow John. Uh, follow the Second City <laughs> if you don't already. I don't know if they need to plug. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.